Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read out of there uh, verses 1 through about 12, a few verses there. So if you don't mind, stand with me, please, out of respect for the Word of God as I read it to you. Acts chapter 9. I want to preach to you about the miracle of conversion. The miracle of conversion. Let me say before I read this that this church does not operate based upon making people good. Nor does it operate based upon helping the needy. Those things are good. And those things are a byproduct of this church. Making people good, that's a good thing. Helping needy people, that's a great thing. But that's not what this church is about. This church, I know your pastor, like my church... And all churches actually should be not about making you good and helping the needy and other things, social things like that. This is not a social gathering. There is some social gathering going on, but that's not what this is about. It's not about you and I having a good time together. There's more to it than that. In fact, there's something about it that the world does not have. Nobody else has. And it's the miraculous The purpose of this church is the miraculous. This church should be accomplishing, I'm sorry, accomplishing miraculous things. And the number one thing is miraculous conversion. You and I know, those of us that are saved, born again, know that conversion to Jesus Christ is a miraculous event. Amen? And really, the New Testament church operates in the miraculous. Does that make sense? It's true. It really is. We're all about the miraculous. And conversion is the number one thing in miraculous events. It's the miracle of conversion. The change in a person's heart to go from darkness to light. To go from death to to life. Amen? To go from self to Jesus Christ. That's the miraculous. And I want you to see an example of it here today in Acts chapter 9, and then we'll talk about it and kind of dissect this here in Acts chapter 9, verse number 1. This is, of course, the recording of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the people that were disciples of Jesus Christ after His ascension. He's already gone into heaven after his resurrection and visiting, seeing the believers for about 40 days. And he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Now what happens? What goes on? Well, one of the things was persecution. They were persecuted by the Judaizers, the Jews, the religious Jews. But look what happens in Acts chapter 9, verse number 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if any that he, if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. 
And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three, and he was three days without sight, and, did, and neither did he eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. I'll read one more verse. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. I'll stop right there, and we're going to preach from that point and talk about the miracle of conversion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, so much for your word. We pray that you'd speak to us through it, and by your Holy Spirit, anoint this service, accomplish what you want in our hearts and lives, I pray. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I mentioned already in the Sunday school hour, and I'll mention it again, that our nation is in turmoil. You know this. It's sad to see, is it not? I'm a patriot. I love America. I love the red, white, and blue. I love the star-spangled banner. I love the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I believe the Founding Fathers were right in what they did and blessed of God to be able to accomplish what they did for our nation. I'm thankful to God for capitalism, free enterprise, the liberty that we have, most of all, the freedom of religion that we can worship here today as we choose to read God's Word, to preach the Gospel, to encourage others to be saved, and to give of our income to support the work of the ministry as well as to serve the Lord in our lives. What a privilege. I love this country but I'm sad to see the turmoil that's going on. I'm sad to see the division in the media, in the streets of our cities, amongst individuals that you may talk to in different places. I'm sad to see that. We desperately need some answers for our country, don't we? We desperately do. The political situation is unbelievably ridiculous. It's really ridiculous, isn't it? It's, it's a bunch of adults that are supposed to be intelligent, acting like a bunch of little kids in a sandbox fighting over a toy. Right? It's just ridiculous and dishonest and all that stuff. And everybody has their opinion. And I, I understand that. I, uh, I'm sad to see the difficulty. Our, our, our country needs some answers. Well, I believe that Jesus is the answer. That really, I, I do believe that. You know what? I don't believe that no matter who's running or who gets elected that they're going to be the answer necessarily for our nation. I believe that Jesus is the answer. Our nation needs a miracle. Actually, it needs a miracle way bigger than politics. It needs God. That's what our nation needs. 
the miracle of conversion. That's what I believe we as a as a church, as a, as a body of believers here in this place, as Christians, really have the corner on our market on miracle, the miracle of conversion. Let me tell you a little story. In 1952, a probation officer in New York City tried to find an organization that would assist the adoption of a 12-year-old boy. Although the child had a religious background, none of the major denominations would assist in his, denomin- in his adoption. The officer involved later said his case had been reported to me because he had been truant. I tried for a year to find an agency that would care for this needy youngster. Neither Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish institutions would take him because he came from a denomination they did not recognize, and so I could do nothing constructive for him. If the principles of Christian love had prevailed then in 1952 in the Bronx of New York City, perhaps that young mixed-up boy would have had a different outcome in life and history could have been changed for that boy's name was Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who assassinated John F. Kennedy. How bad do we need some miracles in our country? More so today than ever. I want to say to you today that the miracle that is needed is the miracle of conversion. The conversion to Jesus Christ that could have and should have been the answer for Lee Harvey Oswald and many others, innumerable amount of others, all others, to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Here in the Bible, the Bible in Acts chapter 9 tells us the story of one of the greatest miracles of conversion that's ever happened, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He was educated by the Jews in the Jewish religion. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the wisest and most prominent professors in the Jewish religion that existed. And he was probably one of the prized students. And Paul, or Saul rather, sat at his feet and listened to him teach and sucked up, as it were, absorbed this teaching and became a zealot, an energetic observer of the Jewish religion at the teaching of Gamaliel and the encouragement of the Jewish leaders in that day. So as he grew up and became a man, he followed what the Jews wanted to do, including the animosity against Christianity. At that time, the same time that Saul was a zealot, an energetic follower of the Jewish religion, Christianity had come about because, of course, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And now, of course, Jesus, as I mentioned, had already been crucified, buried, risen again, spent time with the disciples, and then ascended into heaven. And now the disciples were conducting then the ministry that Jesus had commissioned them to do, to preach the gospel to the world. They were to take it everywhere, and they did. And especially there in Jerusalem, they're preaching the gospel, and Jerusalem was in turmoil. They were in religious turmoil because of Christianity becoming so popular, so accepted, so powerful. Why, Peter at Pentecost preached a sermon that shook those Jews to the core. And 3,000 of them received Jesus Christ in one meeting. 
What an event, amen? 3,000 turned to Christ. And then later, as a result, multitudes of people got saved. The Jews, hearing this gospel and knowing of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts, multitudes of people were converting from Judaism to Christianity. And Jerusalem was in turmoil. Wow, how it shook that city and that nation. The religious leaders of the Jews were in shock. They were angry. And so they begin to send men like Saul of Tarsus to attack and to capture, to arrest those people, to charge them, those Christians, with crimes against the community, the nation, or even Rome, and of course take them to prison or even kill them. And so there was great turmoil and fear amongst the Christians and the Jews, animosity and hatred, all that stuff, great turmoil going on. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all of this, while Saul, <coughs> excuse me, of Tarsus, is traveling to Damascus of Syria to try to capture more of those Christians who some had escaped to get away from the persecution, on the way, a light shines in the road. Knocks him to his knees. He fell to his knees. And he's converted to Jesus Christ. What an event. What a change. What a happening. Ananias, I'm sure, and as we can tell in the Scripture, and if you were to read more later, not now, if you were to read more, you can tell that Ananias was even afraid of what had happened here and fearful of this Saul of Tarsus, for he knew who Saul of Tarsus was. But truly, Saul of Tarsus was converted to Jesus Christ. What a miracle. What a miracle that conversion was. We see that Saul's life changes. He changes from one who persecuted Christianity to become one who preached Christianity. Who prayed and honored the Lord Jesus Christ and held up Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. What a conversion. Don't you know that Christianity was a buzz with that news? Right? Can you imagine the buzz going around Christianity? And also, can you imagine the disappointment amongst the Judaizers? Those religious Jews. The disappointment, the shock, the anger. All that money and work that had been put into him. And all that hope because of his efforts. Now, he's converted to become a Christian? What is going on? Their world was imploding because of this. But Saul of Tarsus did truly convert to Jesus Christ. He was born again like the Bible says. What a miracle happened there. But I want to say to you today, listen, the miracle of conversion is still just as real today as it was then. The miracle of conversion in a person's heart is just as real today as it was in the heart and life of Saul of Tarsus, who became, as you know, Paul the Apostle. It is real. It changes people's hearts and lives. And that's the miracle that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, as a part of this New Testament church, have the privilege of sharing with others. The miracle of conversion. What a blessing it is. I'm sure many of you right now in this auditorium, sitting here listening to me, are recounting and re being reminded in your own heart and life of the conversion that took place in your life. I've heard some already this morning of the miracle of conversion to Jesus Christ. 
What a wonderful miracle that is. Amen? What a joyous event. It's the captain. It's, it's the it's everything to us as believers. The conversion to Jesus Christ. Let me give you some things that this conversion requires. This conversion involves. This true conversion. This change from the inside out. Right? This change of heart. First of all, it's a recognition. This conversion is a recognition. It's a recognition of our sin. That's a requirement, is it not? A recognition of our sin. We must recognize, those of you that are saved, did recognize that you and I are sinners. Isn't it amazing that most people consider themselves good? Everybody does. You walk up and down the street, you talk to people, most consider themselves pretty good. They're all right. Pretty good. They're, they're, they're decent people. Most people say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. As if that's the criteria for being good. That's a pretty simple and base criteria, isn't it? Oh, so only the people that have killed somebody else are bad? All the rest of us are good. Well, that's not a very good criteria. Because actually there's a lot of bad things that people do besides killing other people. We must recognize that we're sins. The Bible says that Jesus said to some of those religious leaders uh, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus sat at meat in the house, and behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You say, what does that mean? What it means is that we must recognize that we're sinners. In order for the miracle of conversion to take place, we must first recognize that we are in bad standing with God in our own lives. That we do not please God in our lives. People think, well, I'm pretty good. God's going to be pleased with me. I... When I die, I'm going to stand before God and God's going to say, you did your best. You really were a pretty decent person. You know, I know you kicked your cat, when your neighbor's cat, whenever it came over on your yard. And I know, you know, you, you did this or did that. But, you know, you, you cussed a little and, you, you know, you, you drank a little and you stole a little bit from your employer. But, but that's the norm. That's okay. You're all right. People think that. They really do. They think when they stand before God, God's going to say, oh, you're a good old guy. You know, you're just one of the good old boys. But the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. The Bible says in John 3, 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There's nothing more that you need to do to go to hell if you're not saved. You're already on your way. You're already going there. You're not on your way to heaven if you're not saved. You're on your way to an eternal hell because of your sin. We must recognize that we are wicked sinners. Aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yes, we are. We're wicked sinners. You know, it's almost like my wife and I, we live kind of out in the country, which some of you do as well. This kind of whole area is almost country, right? 
small town, small town America. And my wife said the other day, here we are out in the country and we're supposed to enjoy fresh air. But the farmers make sure we don't get it. (laughs) I mean, the other day, you know how this is, right? The other day, some farmer was spreading pig manure upwind of us. You know how that is, right? We got hog farms around us like you do as well. And then big old tanks pulling across the field and spraying that stuff out. I'm telling you, we had to shut the windows and doors and get in and hope that it didn't all seep into the air conditioning, right? You know how that is. Oh, man, you can't hardly bet some of that stuff take your breath away, right? I know some of you farmers say, smells like money to me, right? (laughs) Well, that hog manure and chickens and turkey and cattle manure. We got a massive cattle barn near us now. Man, Tilburg Farms built this big, massive dairy. Thank the Lord, it's east of us. The prevailing wind blows it away most of the time. Do you know that's what your sin is like before God? Do you know that? You and I... Our best that we can do is like spraying hog manure on the field. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. Am I right? Yeah, you know it. You say, well, I'm not a bad person. No, you're like the pig manure on the fields. That's gross, isn't it? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be offensive. Oh, yes, I do. You're a sinner. That's what you are. And so am I. I'm a preacher's kid. I was raised in a good home. My mom and dad are good people. Now, there's some family here today, so don't ask them. But my mom and dad are good people. And they raised me right. My mom could wield the belt like Indiana Jones with a whip. I'm telling you, what pow, man, I'm telling you. And she'd bust me whenever I disobeyed. I deserved it. I needed it. But you know what? In spite of that good raising, I've done some things that are against God. Know a lot of things. God knows it. Thank mom, mom, and thank God, mom and dad don't know it, but most of them. Do you know what? We're all sinners, aren't we? That's the first thing that Saul of Tarsus had to recognize, and I'm sure that was in his heart when he fell on his knees and recognized this is Jesus. The one that I hate. The one that I've been persecuting his followers. This is Jesus. I'm sure the light's blinding him. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine the fear and the shock gripping his heart when he realized he's real. The one whom I have hated and persecuted, he's real. I bet you he realized he was a sinner, don't you? He recognized what he was. The second thing is there must be a repentance, and I'm sure that's what Paul the Apostle had in his heart, or Saul there uh, had in his heart. He used the word Lord. That's a word of recognition of authority. Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? What do you want me to do, Lord? He recognized. He repented. He fell to the earth. Repentance toward God for the the offense. Not only do we need 
to recognize we're sinners, but we need to repent of that sin. Repentance. The Bible says in Romans 3, 19, Now we know whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to him who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Repentance before God for our sin. Repentance toward God for what we've done. We need to repent of our sin. You cannot be saved. You cannot enjoy the miracle of conversion. It cannot happen to you until you repent of your sin. You must not only acknowledge that you're a sinner, but repent of them before God. And say, God, I'm sorry. I know some people say, well, I can't ever be a good Christian. Thank God I couldn't either without the Lord Jesus changing me. And when you repent, God changes you. When you repent of your sin and acknowledge before God that the attitude He has about your sin, we should have as well. Amen? We ought to be horrified about our sin. Disgusted with our own sinfulness. And repent toward God for our sin. We ought to thank God for His love for us and change from pride. You know what? Repentance is a change from pride to humility. A lot of people are self-reliant, you know. Look at me. I am somebody. I'm a good person. Self-reliant. You know that? You know, that's the biggest enemy to faith is self-reliance. I can do what I need to do. I can be what I ought to be. I, I can accomplish. I, 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 I'm good. I, I, I'm all right. I'm going to make it. I'll get by. When you come before God acknowledging your sin, you must acknowledge that you're undone, unworthy of any goodness from God, deserving of hell and the judgment of God. You change from pride to humility. You know that humility is a characteristic of Christianity. And it's a good one, isn't it? Amen? Humility. It's a humbling before God. It's a humbling, actually, not only before God, but before everybody else. You've seen the bumper sticker that says, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Right? Thank God for that, that truth, that, that acknowledging, that humility. I love that characteristic in Christians that, that when a person gets saved, they're humble. They humble themselves before God, recognizing that they're sin and deserve. What do we deserve from God? Nothing. I heard somebody say, if we got what we deserve from God, we'd all be in hell with our necks broke, right? Isn't that right? We would. Thank God through His grace, because of faith and repentance in Christ, we can be born again. And the third thing is faith. We must come to God in faith. We must trust Him. Paul responded, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He totally submitted and surrendered to Christ. He had a reckoning with God. I kind of like describing it that way. You know what I mean? The world talks about their own um, occasions of getting smart by calling it an aha moment. You ever heard of that? You know, my aha moment was, well, thank God you and I have more than an aha moment. We have a reckoning with God. Amen? It is a moment. It's an event. No doubt about it. It's not a progression where, oh, you know, I think I'm being saved. 
Oh, I think I was being saved. No, it's not a being saved. It's like a marriage ceremony, you know. It's, it's an event. Boom. I do. Right? Those I do's are important, aren't they? Do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded wife, husband? I do. Okay, now I pronounce you man and wife. Marriage, it's an awesome thing. It's an event. Marriage. You heard about the little girl that came running in? Not little girl, a young woman, teenage girl came running into the house and said, Mom, Mom, I just heard that in India a girl doesn't even know her husband until they're married. And the mother said, Oh, honey, it's that way all over the world. <laughs> right? Little boy said to his dad, said, Dad, how much does it cost to get married? He said, I don't know, son, I'm still paying. <laughs> Marriage is an event, right? It's something that you say for my wife and I, August the 14th, 1981. We're celebrating this year our 39th anniversary. Next year, I'm taking out a loan. I don't know what I'm going to do. 40th, right? You know, it's an event. You look back at that and say, that's when I got married. So also with, with being saved, with being born again, it's an event. It's a reckoning with God. Some of you need to have a reckoning with God. You know that? You say, well, you know, yeah, I, I believe in God. I, I, you know, I, I've heard about God, you know, and, and the Bible, you know, it's, it's all right. I, no, no, no it's, not a, it's not a think so, maybe so, hope so. It's a reckoning with God. It's a time when you meet with God and you recognize what you are before God and you surrender to God and accept Him and His plan, what He's done for you. It's a reckoning. It's an event. You ever had that? Has God been knocking on your heart's door? It's about time you let Him in. Amen? And God is not one to break the door down. Right? He doesn't take a battering ram. Now, almost sometimes it almost feels that way in your own heart and life, right? God, but God doesn't batter your door down. The Bible says He's a still, small voice. And He's just knocking at your heart's door. Now, in your mind, it might be a pounding, right? Because it's getting real on you. But God's patient. He's not going to force you to accept Him. Isn't it amazing God doesn't force people to accept Christ as their Savior? If I was God, oh, 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 brother, I'd use lightning a lot, wouldn't you? I would. I would enjoy that. Boof! Okay, pal. You, you've been rebe- you using me for a cuss word. Pow! Boom! Zap! That'll show you. I don't know how, I don't understand how God puts up with people, do you? I don't. But I don't understand how God puts up with me. Right? There's got to be a time when you have a reckoning with God. Saul of Tarsus had a reckoning here. The light of Jesus Christ shone in the road and he fell to his knees. Who art thou, Lord? Boy, he knew something was happening there. And it wasn't Judaism. It was Jesus Christ. He said, what would you have me to do, Lord? I'm yours. You do with me what you want. I've done my own thing. I've followed others and myself. 
Lord Jesus, I'm following you. I'm yours. Faith, that faith, it's not a hope so, it's a confidence. It's an absolute 100% confidence in Jesus as your Savior. I know some people say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus and I believe in this and that and Buddha and, and, and uh, Hinduism and I believe in all of it. No, no. It's 100% Jesus and nobody else. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's Him and Him alone. It's faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let me go on. It's also justification. It's accepting Jesus Christ and being justified. From being burdened with sin to justified. The word justified is just as if I'd never sinned, right? That's a great definition of it. The Bible says in Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Justification. The Bible says in Psalm 103, a, a wonderful passage, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. I love that statement, don't you? It's also a new birth. It's not only faith and justification, repentance and recognition. It's a new birth. It's a birth. You know what? It's a birth into the family of God. A while back, actually quite a few years ago, in this town, a miraculous event happened. Did you know that? Actually, Sydney's a famous place. It is. It's known around the world for the event that happened on October 1st, 1959 in Wilson Memorial Hospital. I was born! I was born in Wilson Memorial Hospital. Born to Dennis Larry Clayton and Lois Eileen Clayton. What a significant event. What an amazing thing. What's for me is my whole world. But the birth into the family of God is far greater. Amen. Jesus said you must be born again. Right? Born into the family of God. Now the Jews could understand that. Because they always thought, well, we're the sons of Abraham. We're born into the family of Abraham. So we're good. Jesus said, no, you got to be born again. A spiritual birth. For us, really, as Non-Jews, it's almost like adoption. The Bible uses the word adoption in the book of Ephesians. We're adopted into the family of God. It is a being born again for us as well. Adoption into God's family. God takes us from the family that we were in, the devil's family, and puts us in his family. How awesome is that? Amen? Adoption's a beautiful thing. Did you know, maybe you knew this already, But did you know that children that are adopted have more rights of the father and mother than natural children do? They do, legally. An adopted child has more rights than the natural children. Those rights are strong, legally, binding for that child to be an heir 
and connected with the parents that adopted them. That's the system in our country. Oh, thank God that you and I, when we get saved, we're adopted into the family of God. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What a blessing, amen? What a privilege it is. The Bible says in Galatians 3.26, For you're the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We're born into the family of God. We're adopted into His family. What a privilege it is. That's a miraculous event. It's the miracle of conversion. Being born into the family of God. I now am a child of God. Do you know, do you experience this? That there are times when you and I are tempted by sin. Every day, right? And yet, in spite of that temptation, which is natural because we have the flesh, right? But yet, in spite of that, the Holy Spirit of God says to us, Hey, that's wrong. Don't you do that. Turn it off. Turn around. Stop. Get away. Don't you do that. Amen? Isn't that great? I love that, don't you? I wish I followed it every time, don't you? But how awesome is it to have the Holy Spirit of God convicting us and drawing us and informing us and empowering us to say no to sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 13, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Amen? So we have the power of the Holy Spirit through the birth, the new birth, to empower us to say no to sin. You and I have the ability to say no to sin that tempts us. We're awake to it. Right? We're awake to that temptation. We have the temptation to sin, and the Spirit says, Oh, wait, wait. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. That's not what you're supposed to be watching. That's not what you're supposed to be saying. That's not what you ought to do. You're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. Right? And you're angry. You're in a hurry. They're going too slow. You didn't make it through that green light. Now you got to sit there for the red light. And you're mad. You don't ever get mad when you're driving, do you? Nah, you wouldn't do that. Just me, right? Get out of the way, you... Oh, can't say that. Right? Holy Spirit of God. What a blessing it is to have the Holy Spirit of God convicting us and drawing us. Hey, listen. That's a miracle. Amen? It's a miracle that the power of God reveals to us, helps us to acknowledge, to recognize sin, and gives us the power to say no to it. How awesome is that? The miracle of conversion. Listen, this miracle is an awesome blessing. The miracle of conversion. Trusting Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and giving you the power to say no to sin so that you and I can live to honor and glorify God. What an awesome thing. Isn't that a miracle? Amen? I remember the story from when I was a kid in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Cleveland Baptist Church. There was a man there from West Virginia named Wiley Lilly. That's his name, Wiley Lilly. Lilly's a big name in the Beckley, West Virginia area. He got a lot of family there. But he moved from Beckley, from the coal mines, up to Cleveland many years ago to work in the 
uh, steel mills and then the car factories. And while he was there, man, Wiley was the toughest knot, pine knot. I'm telling you, that guy was, he wasn't very big, but he as mean as he could be. And he would go into the bars in Cleveland after work and he'd clean out the bar. He'd fight, man, he'd fight and yell and clean out the bar. And there was another guy in the church that had gotten saved that said, I've seen Wiley Lilly clean out the bar. Wiley said, I don't want anybody in here while I'm drinking. I'm getting drunk alone. He'd clean out them bars in Cleveland, you know. He'd fight and cuss and swear and drink. And boy, he was a mean one. Then one day somebody witnessed the gospel to him, of Jesus Christ to him. Wiley Lilly came to the Cleveland Baptist Church, and I'm telling you, he got saved. He got born again, I'm telling you. And that old West Virginia coal miner working in the steel mills changed from a drinking, cussing, fighting, ornery guy to a lover of Jesus Christ and a real Christian. Faithful to the Lord, faithful to his wife. His drinking days were done. He was faithful to God and got involved in the bus ministry helping getting kids to church. He told my dad, he said, Dad, Larry Clayton, I want you to go to Beckley, West Virginia, and I want you to hold a tent revival because I've got a bunch of relatives down there that need to get saved. And he said, I want you to plant a church down there and help a bunch of my uh, people, and I'm going to pay the bill for you to go do it. He did. And some of his family got saved. Some of them still in church today there in Beckley, West Virginia. What a miracle that was, the miracle of conversion. I don't have that dramatic of a testimony. I want to tell you something. The conversion of Jesus Christ in my heart and life is just as real. I'm thankful that God saved me. A preacher's kid. You know preacher's kids need to get saved. You know that, don't you? Amen. You know why preacher's kids are so mean, don't you? Because they got to hang around with the deacon's kids. It's their fault. That's, that's whose fault it is. But the miracle of conversion is just as real. It's just as real for me as it was for Wiley Lilly and anybody else. Thank God it can be just as real for you. You can repent and trust Jesus Christ today. If you've never been saved, the miracle of conversion is ready for you.